Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 48th edition of the PR Masters podcast series. I'm Art Stevens, your host, and I'm also managing partner of the Stevens Group, which is a leading facilitator of mergers and acquisitions in the PR and digital interactive space. The PR Masters podcast honors living legends in our profession, individuals who have made their mark in the world of public relations. And we've got a very special guest today. He is Anthony Carter, who is an expert in global diversity and social justice, and he's a writer and lecturer. Anthony is somebody who I have known for many years. He retired in 2015 as the Chief Diversity Officer at Johnson & Johnson. And in his 40-year career, which spans the corporate, government, and not-for-profit sectors, he's had the distinction of being recognized as a public relations legend by the New York City chapter of the Public Relations Society of America. He's held two government press secretary roles at the local and national levels, in the New York City Mayor's Office and in the United States House of Representatives. He's got many awards, one of which is the Distinguished Corporate Diversity Award from the New Brunswick, New Jersey branch of the NAACP. Anthony is currently an executive committee member of the Board of Trustees for Fordham University, his alma mater. And he's president of the Board of Trustees of the Crossroads Theater Company, New Jersey, something we'll talk about in a little while. And he's recently retired trustee of the United Way USA and board member emeritus of the National Medical Fellowships. He's written many articles on the subject of diversity. He has a personal and enduring relationship with top civil rights leaders and educators across the United States. And in 2017, Anthony received an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Fordham University for his work in global diversity and social justice. So it's my privilege and honor to welcome Anthony Carter to the PR Masters podcast series. Good morning, Anthony. How are you today? Good morning, Art. I am fine. I hope you are as well, and thanks for that very kind introduction. Well, well-merited, well-deserved. So let's begin with Bristol-Myers Squibb and Johnson & Johnson, Anthony. Um, you, your tenure with Bristol-Myers Squibb and Johnson & Johnson covered a number of your professional years. Why don't you tell our listeners how you got started in public relations? It's a question I always like to ask because we get so many diverse answers because people have started in very, very different ways, accidentally as well as not accidentally. How about you? Well, yes, Art. Uh, first of all, diverse answers underscores this whole journey uh, called diversity. So I, I'm happy to share some of my diverse background. And as you know, it, it actually started at Fordham University, where after studying pre-med for just about a semester and realizing that that was not where I could put, put my best foot forward, I ventured into public affairs, corporate communications, and journalism, and I found those classes quite fascinating. I wrote for the school newspaper. I had a radio program. And the, the power of communications just came to me uh, during those, those years at Fordham University uh, up in the Bronx. If you advance that a bit, uh, when I first started working and taking that communications and public relations degree with me, I, I worked at Avon uh, for, for a while. That was really my first job where I did do some corporate communications and some marketing as well. I was in a sales force. But it really got, uh, I guess, heavy duty or intense uh, in terms of responsibility and, and really being immersed in the roles, as you said, at Bristol-Myers Squibb 
and Johnson and Johnson, uh, which was about 24 years of my career, 10 at Bristol and uh, 14 at Johnson and Johnson. And I remember uh, the fondness uh, for the profession. Uh, you know, when, when you have the opportunity to work in a profession, it, it's a continuation of your learning experience, albeit uh, more pragmatic, of course. But I learned to apply some of the things that I learned uh, in, in school. Uh, but I learned it uh, with someone, a company paying a salary and expectations being commensurate with that. So we had to perform. And in that performance, I was able to, learn from from some of the best uh, and and many uh who who you know uh John Weisberg for example at Bristol Myers Squibb and and Bill Nielsen at Johnson and Johnson and they really increased my appetite uh for this work and so that's really how I got started and as you mentioned earlier I had some public sector work as well um but uh that's really where I think uh really got me grounded in this work well you know one of the things you you did of course uh when uh, you and I worked together, when you were at Bristol Myers Squibb, where we first met, and and I headed Lopes and Stevens, uh, a New York City public relations firm, you were involved in what I would call traditional corporate communications. But then you segued into global diversity. Um, how did that come about? Uh, that's something you did while at J and J. Tell us how that came about and uh, what segment of your life that covered. Uh, good question, Art, and I, and I want to, if I can, briefly go back to the Fordham University experience where, I, yes, from, from a practical sense, I did some things that led to the work I did working with your company and other things I did at Bristol-Myers Squibb and J&J that ultimately led to uh, my role as the Chief Diversity Officer. But I had a radio program at Fordham, I'm sorry, at uh, yes, at Fordham, uh, called ELIMU, E-L-I-M-U, which is a Swahili term, which means a search for truth and knowledge. And it was the only black program uh, in WFUV's whole array of outstanding programming. And we brought in uh, diverse topics, speakers, who talked about uh, some of the things we talk about today, diversity, equity, and inclusion, social injustice, civil rights, et cetera. And by writing for the newspaper, I wrote for the newspaper actually at Fordham called The Paper, which was more of a liberal-style newspaper whereby you can uh, blend voices uh, from different perspectives into uh, our weekly publication. So that fundamentally uh, thought made me think about um, what my role is as a black man and my perspective on things that could really enhance the dialogue or the discussion. So I remember that as my foundation coming into the corporate environment and bringing some of that into uh, those venues allowed me to, to kind of celebrate what I've learned, as I mentioned before, you know, now having this practical experience, but really applying what I learned and, and, and also allowing me to be, uh, I would say, a bit honest about what I thought I brought to, to, to the environment. You know, the learning curve continues, but we also have to realize that we bring some different things. And so communications, corporate communications, working for some real giants, uh, having the opportunity to work with you and your firm, uh, Lowson Stevens, Art, really helped me to understand my voice, right, other than, you know, knowing the, 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 the techniques and, and, and the practicality of the profession, where do I fit in? And obviously learning that and growing into that space enabled me to say, okay, what's the value I bring to that? 
And I always thought the value I brought in addition to my perspectives were most importantly, my authenticity and my passion for change, right? A voice, right? A voice of change. And so that really got me grounded in this work. And that led me to realizing that I can tie this whole communications, public relations, journalism into a voice, into an organization where we can express outcomes in terms of how we are looked at as an organization with a diverse lens. Well, Anthony, when you when you joined J and J, I believe you were not initially involved in global diversity. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were involved in corporate communications. How did you segue into J and J, and did J and J pay any attention? to global diversity before you took on that role? Well, good memory. All right, yes, <clears throat> I did I did segue from Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, into Johnson & Johnson in a corporate communications role working for Bill Nielsen, who I still stay in touch with today. Uh, today. And he, um, he, he taught me a lot uh, about this craft. And in the spirit of that work, I was able to, and let me just uh, sidetrack for a very quick moment, uh, the communications folks under Bill Nielsen, and then subsequently uh, Bill Nielsen's replacement, Ray Jordan, we had responsibilities for different functions within the company. So my role as the corporate communications person, I had legal, I had HR, I had, um, you know, the general counsel's office. I said that by legal, but we also had uh, other kind of functional organizations. And I also had the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, right? So I was able to help the, the, the chief diversity officer at the time strategize, focus on their communications plan, uh, look at ways in which they could penetrate the organization to uh, push the whole notion, concept, and examples of good practices around diversity. And so that actually led to once one person retired who was the chief diversity officer and then another, and I was still doing communications for that other person, uh, my opportunity uh, came about where the chairman said to me, look, we, we want you in the role. Uh, because you know a lot about the role, but beyond that role, you have this communications background, so you know how to put us on a map and really tell our stories. So in a nutshell, uh, Art, that, that's how um, I, I transitioned into the chief diversity officer role. And to your question, diversity existed at J&J before I got there um, in and, 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 and many dramatic ways. They had the first woman to, to ever be an executive committee member, that's the top uh, management of the company, uh, filled that position just prior to me. Uh, and she, she was a trailblazer uh, in, in many ways. And she ultimately became the chief diversity officer. Prior to her, the first chief diversity officer was a black man, Frank Bolden, who in fact uh, was a, 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 is a lawyer. And, and he, uh, he took his, his, business sort of background and his alignment with the company as as a, a legal expert into that role uh, as the chief diversity officer. So I'm the third chief diversity officer, or was the third chief diversity officer in J&J's history. Well, speaking of J&J, you know, obviously uh, it's in the news these days. It, it's It's been in the news a lot, you know, which obviously kept you and your colleagues very, very busy aside from helping to make the news for J&J. But you know, starting with Tylenol, you know, and even up to the present, uh, you know, with the uh, COVID vaccine uh, situation. Um, what's your take on, on how J&J has handled crises uh, then and now, given your background at the company? 
So, so Art, uh, you're talking about crisis communications uh, at its best, and uh, some of the work I did both at Bristol Myers Squibb and Johnson and Johnson, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, uh, during the development of drugs for HIV/AIDS, and and at Johnson and Johnson, many things uh, we 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 saw uh, at that company. Um, let me say this, and and uh, it's going to be somewhat of an ironic answer to to your question, but you want J and J in the news because you don't want to hide mishaps, right? You don't want to disguise the truth. So when you take any example uh, that, that, that J&J has had to deal with Tylenol, right, and, and you think about how that was approached, it was full transparency uh, under this banner called our trust mark, the credo, right? You want to talk about that. So lessons that are learned you can share and it also focuses on the integrity of the company. So that's number one. Uh, number two, when you, you fast forward to where we are today, and please understand there have been a lot of things in between Tylenol and where we are today with Johnson & Johnson's vaccine for, for COVID-19. Um, you want to be in the news. You want to discuss what challenges you have. You do recall that when J&J &J was planning through research for their current product, uh, they took themselves out of uh, the market for a while to do further uh, research to look at, okay, what, what, what was significant about Pfizer? What was significant about Moderna? And then how can we find our niche space at the same time sort of supporting what was out there, but continuous sort of innovation and focus on research should allow us, meaning J&J, &J, to find a niche space where we can be as effective as the others. And so when you look at what has happened, and, and look, you know, one in a million cases is still one too many for that particular individual and that individual's family. And as you multiply apply that, four, five, six, seven, eight more, it's the ability to realize that you have an issue back to the cradle, you know, what our responsibility is to our, our customers, our patients. And then maybe in some cases like Tylenol and like the vaccine, shut things down to make sure we get it right. And I think if people believe in J&J's approach to doing business and believes in a case study that is still practiced in business schools, the credo, right, and the approach to doing the right thing, uh, this is a company that has always been able to, to show its resiliency in terms of um, uh, its ability to, to get back into the marketplace uh, with, with the right kind of approach for caring for patients and customers. So, Anthony, you have the unique distinction of having a, a tremendous amount of experience in the world of healthcare and, and pharma uh, with Bristol-Myers Squibb and uh, Johnson & Johnson, and you've been involved in diversity. Um, how do the two relate, healthcare and diversity? Is there a unique blend uh, that uh, is created by, by the two? You know, maybe I, I was fortunate to be able to find the link. Um, in many ways, there are other uh, companies in, in, in various industries uh, who find ways to link their DNI imperatives, diversity and inclusion imperatives, to their business model. So at J&J &J and Bristol-Myers Squibb, which, as you know, I did some diversity there as well before I left to join Johnson & Johnson, the model had to align, the diversity and inclusion model, or what we call today diversity, equity, inclusion model, had to align with, with health care outcomes, 
right? Again, that's underscored in, 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 in uh, the first responsibility in the cradle, our responsibility to our patients, doctors, nurses, mothers, fathers, children, right? We had to make sure that we, we were producing products that, that enabled people to have an enhanced quality of life. So with that said, we were able to, with our diversity program, define business initiatives, business imperatives around how we penetrate the marketplace. For example, healthcare disparities, unmet need, finding solutions to the, in the marketplace that prior to a diversity sort of lens, we, have, we may have missed key portions of our population. And so we looked at things like diabetes, for example, you know, disproportionately affecting, you know, uh, communities of color. Uh, we, we, we looked at things like joint replacement surgery art, where we knew at the time, and this, and I, and I might say this, it, it may sound like, you know, I'm bragging about this, but I'm very proud of this. The team we had in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, which was comprised of men and women from all backgrounds and all professional backgrounds, marketing, science, research, all in our department. We built the department that way. We found a huge opportunity around joint replacement surgery, where in 2010, we identified a market of 55 and over black and Hispanic marketplace who were not getting joint replacement surgery for a whole variety of reasons. Black folks are typically a little uncertain about relationships with, with the healthcare profession because of things like the Tuskegee studies, right? And you also find in the terms of our Latinx or Latino population, there's, there's somewhat of a sort of healthcare literacy. Doesn't mean they're not smart, but the language, you know, the English language is not their first language. So we identified by working with marketing, working with our senior management, working with employee resource groups, that there's a marketplace here, as we examined it at the time in 2010, of $270 million, which will grow in about 10 years. So that was about what? Last year, actually, 2020, to about a, a $370 million marketplace, of which Johnson & Johnson, with its medical devices business, could realize a gain of $67 million. That alone is what we call the business imperative behind DNI. When you sit at the table of influence with, with, with management at the senior level, you always want to come to the table, Art, as you know, clearly being a, a, a very, you know, uh, a successful businessman, you want to come to the table with solutions to problems, right? And diversity can't always look like this amorphous thing, albeit good. When you align it to business outcomes, then it makes sense for people to practice it. So we put that in place, and we were very, very successful. We watched the market grow. We watched J&J's business model grow. And we were able to say, okay, now we want everyone to look at DNI, diversity and inclusion, as a business objective, a business imperative. And I think, Art, to be really, really candid with you, that's why we were successful. You know, uh, global diversity obviously is taking a front seat in the world of, of, of uh, corporations, uh, uh, both domestically and internationally. So uh, you rose to the top ranks of uh, global diversity in a major, major corporation. So my question to you, and, and don't be immodest about this, okay? Uh, why you and, and not someone else? What, what skills and capabilities, uh, Anthony, do you feel that you brought to your role as head of worldwide diversity at J&J? Well, Art, I'll tell you a story, a very quick story, because we are in the business of storytelling, right, as communications folks. So when we were, and I told you that I, I did happen to be the communications lead for uh, both of uh, the, the chief diversity officers who, who came before me, 
Um, when it was time for the second one to retire, our chairman at the time, Bill Weldon, uh, called me to his office. We had a long meeting, uh, and we went down to the, uh, the uh, cafe in the building and had lunch, and we were just talking generally. And he looked at me and he said, Anthony, I want you to, to fill the roles of the uh, role of the chief diversity officer. And it took me by surprise. I mean, I was doing a communications. So I looked at him. He gave me an explanation. He said, you know, we need to take it to a new level and we want to do some different things. And you've been working with the office in communication. So you kind of know what the strategy is. We want to want to take that up a notch. And so, Art, believe it or not, I kind of laughed. It's <laughs> just like I'm laughing now. I said, Bill. I am the product of diversity, right? I just got this promotion to vice president of corporate communications, reporting to at the time, uh, uh, Bill, uh, well, Ray Jordan had come on. I said, I'm good, but I have context, Bill. I got a lot of context, and I can find you somebody. And so Bill Weldon laughs. He laughs, and I remember it clearly. He says, Anthony, I'm the chairman of the board. I have context as well. So my laugh became a very serious sort of, uh, response to him, and he said, Anthony, here's what I'm looking for that you have. I'm looking for leadership. And so Art, that made me realize a couple of things that I had been acknowledged, you know, without people even telling me until that moment. I, I do believe I try to be an effective leader. But when it's clear to the chairman of the board, then you got to know that uh, he sees a calling that I may have missed and what the right calling, what the right move. So fast forward, I took the role, and I think that leadership, back to the story I told you a bit ago about the, uh, the, the, the we call the underserved market opportunity for joint replacement surgery, um, that took leadership. But it took leadership to define what leaders need to bring other leaders into the mix so you can really move to the target, right? So it's not one of those pat on the back, you know, uh, the chairman of the board said to me that he admired my leadership style, but I do know, I think he admired the way in which we brought leaders together to solve problems that were so crucial to business continuity and business success. So that, that's, the, that's the best way I can describe that. Anything else might sound, you know, so, so egotistical, you know, but I, I believe I was good at what I did because of the folks who I surrounded myself with. And, and it all uh, falls under the, the, the big L called leadership. Well, you're, you're very modest, Anthony, because uh, ha having worked with you both at Bristol-Myers Squibb and, and uh, at Crossroads Theater Company, which we'll discuss in just a moment, uh, I can attest to your leadership skills and capabilities. Uh, in fact, very often I'm in awe at, at how you rally the troops and how you m manage to get things done you know, with your leadership style. Um, so... Uh, you don't have to comment on that. That's that's a uh, that's a compliment, and based on my experience with you. Uh, you <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, as as a, if I can throw religion in here, I'm a Catholic, and you know, there's some elements of modesty and humility <laughs> that you know you, you got to serve the world with. So I I try to bring that forth, but unfortunately, with, through your keen perception and perspective, and the way you you and I have a relationship, uh, you can see right through it, and I'm glad you can because that un, only underscores the the closeness of our relationship. So so thank you, but you know, humility and modesty is something that I treasure. Um, but you, you, you help me brag when I, when I need to brag. <laughs> well, all I can tell you, Anthony Carter, is that you are a people person, and people respect you, admire you, and uh, obviously follow your lead because you are indeed a leader. Um, 
which takes me now to Crossroads Theatre Company, okay? Um, and uh, in full transparency to our listeners, you know, um, uh, I, I have accepted your invitation a few years ago to be on the board of uh, trustees of uh, Crossroads Theatre Company, and I would like you to describe to our listeners what it is, um, how your role in it came about, and, uh, and uh, what it is currently doing. So uh, that leaves the door open for you to kind of just uh, uh, take it from there. <laughs> Sure. Well, well, all right. Let me clarify one thing uh, because uh, I think I hope from this conversation people will detect that we're pretty close. So Art and I went out one evening in New Jersey and Somerville for some dinner, and uh, and we were talking. and And Art knew a little bit about uh, my work with Crossroads Theater Company. Is that correct, Art? Because we we yeah. always get together every so often, maybe once or twice a month. Uh, uh, if not at least once a month uh, during the summer when, when you're here in, in New Jersey. And we talk about things and, and, and a whole lot of things. And Crossroads has always been uh, uh, top of mind. But when we sat down to talk that day, I just saw you um, just so fascinated with all the things I was talking about. And Art, in all due respect, I didn't offer you an invitation. You said to me point blank, I like to be part of that movement, Anthony. Do you remember that art? I, okay, remember this is your podcast. You got to you got to be honest. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do. I do. I confess. <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay, and, and and a welcome confession as well as a, a welcome onboarding. And it was so easy to put you on because um, I just had to talk to our membership committee and tell them who you are. Crossroads is a passion, as I know it has grown so much uh, as your passion as well, and you have done some incredible work with us. And, and the work that we do at Crossroads. Crossroads is a continuation of my work in diversity. Crossroads is about a 43, close to 44-year-old theater company, black theater company, based in New Brunswick, New Jersey, founded by two young up- upstarts at the time, uh, you know, Lee Richardson and Ricardo Kahn, who when they were students at Rutgers University, they said, let's do something dramatic during the height of civil rights, racial tension, and all of those things. And he founded this theater, and they felt that, you know, black voices unapologetically can be presented in theater to not just showcase black talent, but to showcase and present messages about our trials and tribulations, our ups and downs, our songs and our cries, and all of these things that are reflective of the Africa diaspora, right? Right in the the, the environment of New Jersey, we were able to bring, you know, talent to that stage uh, that that, that allowed us to really showcase who we are. Viola Davis, Ozzie Davis, uh, Ruby Dee, you know, all of these, and, and, and the list goes on. And we were able in the early 90s to be awarded a Tony Award for Best Regional Theater in the Country. Now, if that's not a statement, I mean, what else is? We didn't have to compete for it, but we were given that because of the presence we had. I chose to stay committed to uh, uh, Crossroads now that I'm retired. I did start out uh, as a trustee when I was a, um, uh, an employee at Johnson & Johnson as a chief diversity officer, and then I was elected uh, to the presidency of the board uh, just as I retired, and it was a no-question kind of response, absolutely. you know. Um, and when I talk to you, Art, and talk to other members, you know some other extraordinary members of our, our board who have come on to, to join us. We were at a very difficult place. you know. This is pre-COVID, right? So we were really trying to find out 
you know, how can we look at our business plan, our business model, keep the sanctity of who we are, and expand it to a place where we can incorporate more stories, stories written by white directors, characters played by Indian women, Pakistani women, you know, uh, writers who, who talk a lot about what we should be doing from a sort of cultural, and I'm going to use the word revolutionary perspective when it came to theater. So all of these wonderful things that we were able to bring by looking at a diverse lens of what Crossroads is. And Crossroads, as you know, is, has been on the map as, as yes, one, one of the best theater companies uh, uh, and, and, and I would say in the world because we hear from places like South Africa, Johannesburg. We hear from places in Europe about what are you guys doing? Art, we, we, we hear from your theater company right in Sanibel over there in, on the west coast of Florida. You know, how can we help? How can we do more? How can we partner? So that, that has kept me, you know, into the mix, and that has allowed me to bring on extraordinary members of the board like yourselves and other folks who have been entrepreneurs who can keep this business model on theater, which is quite a nice sort of alignment, not, not robbing the theater of its theatrical purpose, its messages, but making sure we can fund the messages with good, solid business acumen. So tell us about where Crossroads is, uh, is today. Uh, obviously, it's had to deal with COVID, uh, like uh, all theater, all live theater. Uh, it's had to shut its doors to the theater mm -hmm. that it occupies in New Brunswick, New Jersey, for a period of time. Tell us what Crossroads has done in the interim and what the outcome is sure. and where it's headed. Sure. So, you know, look, uh, our uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus, has impacted so many people in so many dramatic and unexpected ways. And uh, in many ways, it has hampered uh, business and theater and a lot of a lot of things from continuing on. I mean, the coronavirus shut down. I always say civilization for a long period of time, and and uh, and it still, uh, you know, uh, has us in a point where we have to be extraordinarily cautious and and how we 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 go about our daily lives, right? However, Art, and, and you've heard me say several times, I look at things through a business lens, not always opportunistically, but just foundationally, if that makes sense. In other words, during this time, COVID-19, people are isolated. People are clamoring for, like, I've got to get through this, and yet I've got to be restricted. And all these things have hampered our lifestyles. And our lifestyles have allowed us to see theater, to go out to restaurants, to have family members and friends over. And we've had to kind of, you know, just just not do that. It's the best way I can say it. You can't do that because it's it's not going to be helpful to, to health outcomes. But during that time, Art, we decided, and you know this, you were part of the, the brains behind this, right, the genius behind this. How can Crossroads continue right, and focus on what people need in their lives. We did a lot of research, we did some surveys, and we found that, yes, people are not coming back to theater, but there's a thing called a virtual platform, the advent of Zoom and FaceTime and all this stuff. We found our niche by saying, what should that virtual platform look like? And then in order to, to be successful on that platform, Ricardo Kahn, our founder, came back to us. He was artistic director years back. He retired, went on to the Smithsonian in Washington and helped with the African-American theater, I'm sorry, um, African-American museum there. And he came back and, you know, we had some long discussions with him and said, you know, Rick, we, we don't want to close our doors, literally. Uh, we want to open up some virtual doors. 
and Rick Ricardo Khan for the past couple of years have gotten us through, has gotten us through uh, this, this whole, um, uh, I guess this, the situation we confront is this very serious, grave situation. And we've done it in such a way where Art and, 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 and you're part of our, our, our finance committee. We have raised more money than we've ever seen. We have managed our finances better than we've ever had. And like any theater company, not just a black theater company, any person or organization into the arts, you're struggling during this time and you're str- it's an ongoing struggle. Art, as you know, because of our tenacity and our ability to say, all we do is produce theater to make people's lives better, to enhance their quality of life through theater. And in order to do that, we know there's a price that you pay. And so without charging for the platform, we were able to do some things, right? And by having virtual theater, uh, we were able to have folks see us and fund us. Now, just before that, as you know, in 2019, we had our very first gala, which was a fundraiser, and we awarded Denzel Washington the, the inaugural Ozzie Davis Ruby D. Living Legends Award, right? And that, again, enhanced our presence on the map, and that was prior to COVID. And then when COVID came, obviously, we were carrying that banner forward so people knew who we were. And as we continue to, to, to live off of that sort of recognition, we, are, we were planning for our next gala, during COVID, and as you know, and, and, and the listening audience should know as well, uh, on May 20th, uh, just next month, we will be honoring uh, the legend Cecily Tyson for the work she's done, you know, in theater and film and the courageous uh, uh, sort of characters she's portrayed in her history, which all aligns with, with Crossroads, at our second a Night with Crossroads Gala. And we will be, uh, you know, uh, 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 just recognizing her. We'll have entertainment. We'll have a lot of things. Now, why do I, I, I give you those two examples? Because we know we have to fundraise. And during this time, you, you know, some might say, well, that's a little crazy because people are not coming in your theater. Art, I, 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 I get uh, goosebumps when I say this. But as you know, because of your, your genius and, and your work with our, our finance committee, Crossroads will see itself next month, or let's say June, at the close of the season, for the first time in years, and you know how many years they are, many years, debt-free. And when we tell that to funders now who people are are gearing up to support our gala next month, they are thrilled. They're overwhelmed. They want to know how we can continue, help you continue on that path. That's been a work that we put in place when I started on the board. We got to find a, a financial model to keep us afloat, not even knowing COVID was on the map and then realizing that we needed to bring in leadership like yourself and others to help us really formulate that strategy for success. All right, in a nutshell, that's how we did it. I'm not going to suggest to you it was easy. You know you've been on some of those calls. It was blood, sweat, and tears, but we got it done. So, Anthony, uh, obviously it's been a a labor of love for me to be involved with you and the Crossroads Theater Company. Uh, I, I, I love what Crossroads has done and is doing, and uh, and my next question to you, you know, as the uh, current president of Crossroads, is what's your vision for where Crossroads will be, say, in the next five years? What what do you want to see happen with uh, Crossroads? So, Art, any any good strategic plans uh, starts uh, to be formulated, uh, you know, like two three years ago and now, and so Art, I believe we're seeing those five years uh, sort of come into vision for us. We wanted to uh, diversify our board. 
not only with cultural backgrounds of people who are different, uh, we wanted to bring different perspectives, thoughts, ideas, experiences, religion, everything to help us see theater differently. We wanted to financially manage more prudently. We wanted to make sure that we can only do what we can afford, right, nothing more. We wanted to uh, look at the structure of our organization and bring in talent at the, uh, the, the, the office level to bring in people who could help Ricardo Khan develop and, and sort of sketch out this new frame. Um, in five years, uh, we'll just pick that time, but I hope we see it now. We will continue to be a force in the industry. That is happening now. We will be uh, continuously sought after <clears throat> for talent, uh, not only on the stage, but people who want to work with the theater, writers, directors, stagehands, you name it. We're seeing that now. And when we are able to open our doors again, we will gradually, with protocol direction, uh, uh, you know, put we call seats in, uh, butts in the seats, so to speak, to make uh, the shows really more alive, so to speak. And uh, we will find ourselves continuing this quest. This is going to sound weird with what you just asked and what I just told you, but we will continue to find ourselves searching uh, for prominence, right? Uh, my philosophy is you, you don't rest on your laurels. You don't, you know, sit down, put your feet up and say, we've done it. Uh, business doesn't work that way. Theater doesn't work that way. We will always try our very best to outdo the last show. And so that's where I see us in the future, uh, in the very near future, and celebrating, continuing to celebrate, I think, the uniqueness we bring as a theater company and enabling other theater companies, which may not be black theater companies, emulate in many ways in a positive way, showcase what they believe diversity in programming for theater is all about. And then, again, we will continue to be seen as, as a force in this industry, but also leaders. Th that's my goal, and, and, and we are moving there so nicely. Nancy, let, let, let's talk for a moment about uh, broadening the subject of diversity. Um, diversity in this country, obviously, the U.S. is going through some tough times in terms of racial injustice uh, and the desire to obviously improve it. Do you have a view about uh, where diversity is in this country and what you believe needs to be done, whether it's being done yet or not? Uh, yes, Art, I do. And as you know, I've been doing a lot of writing. And, uh, you know, for some strange reason, I was pulled out of retirement. There's no sign. I always say there's no sign on my house that says for hire. Uh, but people have found me here in Florida, and they have asked me to speak to their organizations, the leadership, their employee resource groups, help them strategize for diversity. And uh, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we know this has been something that's been going on, been going on for a long time. Uh, but COVID-19 and the George Floyd uh, murder uh, uh, kind of enabled us to focus more attention on this subject. Now, with that said, uh, it doesn't say we weren't focusing attention on diversity before that, but the way this world is now, uh, we've come to a critical, what I call, judgment point. Do we want to live in, 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 in an existence that enables us to continue to get the best out of one another, albeit we have a really embarrassing history of trying to bring differences together? But when we look at the progress we made, people progress, business progress, environmental progress, diversity progress, can we see, can we realize how all of that can come together to make us more of a preeminent environment? I use that word a lot because there's so much good that we have yet to untap. 
What gets in the way are, yes, are the current conditions, right? We see social injustice. Well, we saw the civil rights movement. We see racism has reared its ugly head. We saw that, you know, in many times in our history. We can go back to Jim Crow laws. We can go back to the portrayal of, of black folks on TV or, or inability to be on TV or in movie or in businesses. And yes, while we've made progress, there's still so much to do. And what I think binds that sort of let's start thinking about more to do is our response to the situation. We can't afford to celebrate the problems. Oh, my God, look at what's going on and this and that. We have to do less celebrating of the problem and more resolving of the problems. You know, my, my philosophy, I say this to you a lot, it's about solutions. So how do we create these solutions? We have to find a way in which, right, when we're at the seat of influence, we're only talking about the solutions. Healthcare, for example, how can we impact healthcare disparities, unmet need? Business, for example, how can we expand our thinking with people who are different, women, people of color, et cetera, right? How do we start looking at, you know, uh, ourselves as service-oriented people, and in the spirit of being service-oriented, no one is left out of our service or our help, right? How do we have deeper conversations like you and I have, Art, about politics, right? No matter what side the individual is on the political sphere, where do we end up when we finish the conversation as friends like we began the conversation? We are so polarized today. We are so my point matters, not yours today. We are so wanting to disadvantage communities who are impactful or can be more impactful to how we live as a society. Look at voter suppression. Right, Texas and, and Georgia as two examples. You know, let's be honest, politics kind of took on a whole new front without being political, but within my statement, it is political, and I get it. But we took on this state where we stopped listening to one another's, and we stopped using the political base as leadership to help us grapple with issues that we all go through, poverty, homelessness, education, you know, all of these things that are, are just so – you know, impactful to all our lives. And we built these barriers that were, were created in terms of people's, I suggest, inability to lead, to lead us to a place where we don't have to be perfect, but there's got to be a prescription for how we can be better. So, you know, we are a mess, and I'll say that, but there are solutions to fix this. If only we listen, if only we come to the table with open minds, and if we're really prepared to, to take this journey, to get some scars and some bruises, get up and heal, brush ourselves off, and get back into the game, we can solve this. You know, and we've seen this, Art. We've seen this in business. We've seen this in our, our uh, you know, theater company, Crossroads, how we're not going to sit down and, 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 and take the onslaught of, of whatever it is, prejudice, biases, racism. We're going to move forward with a purpose that's going to be sort of uh, joined uh, by those who believe that the purpose ser serves all. That's where I think we need to go. That, those are the conversations I'm having. I say to folks, you want me to talk? I'm not going to celebrate the problem. We're going to talk about the solutions that are required, or it's going to be a waste of all our time, right? Wow. This is great. It's great. Anthony, on that note, uh, we're going to conclude our discussion today. Um, you've been terrific, as usual. It's one of the reasons I truly wanted to have you as a guest on PR Masters because you are a PR master as well as a master 
at the human race. You really are. Uh, you are a leader, and uh, uh, I am delighted and happy and proud to be your friend, and I hope that continues for many years to come. So, Anthony Carter, I thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your views on the world of diversity and the culture in which we live and some terrific advice on what needs to be done going forward. So, Anthony, thank you so much. Art, thank you, and you are so welcome, and uh, I am so honored to have been asked by you to participate in your passion. I know what this means to you, so thank you for letting me be part of it. Thank you, Anthony. So on behalf of all of us uh, at uh, PR Masters, I thank you for joining us today, our listeners, our loyal listeners, and sharing uh, your thoughts with us as you communicate with us and, and, and have outreach with us to let, to let us know how we're doing uh, with our three-year-old PR Masters podcast series. So thank you, our loyal listeners. Uh, thank you again for tuning in to another one of the Stevens Group PR Masters podcast series. And as I always say to conclude these conversations, until next time, I'm Art Stevens, wishing you all the very best.